Today's reading is Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So, two of my favorite TV shows. One is still really a favorite. One was a favorite for a while. Two of them are political dramas. They're very different takes on what happens in Washington. One is focused on sort of, you know, the dark undercurrent of life in Washington, D.C., and the other is really kind of an overly idealistic view of what government maybe could and should be. The first show is Scandal. Don't judge me! Don't judge me. Okay, it's my guilty pleasure TV show. I first started watching it like, you know, 12 years ago when I was home nursing Esther and I was by myself all day. It's horrible. If you've never watched it, don't. It's terrible. But I started watching it and I got hooked and I had to finish it. Uh, The name of the show probably tells you, if you don't know, everything you need to know about it. It follows Kerry Washington's character, Olivia Pope, whose job is to bury scandals for the rich and powerful in D.C. The president in Scandal at first kind of seems like he's a good guy, but you start to realize he's just as willing as everybody else to lie and cheat to stay in power. At some point in the show, he like literally kills someone with his bare hands. Um, Scandal is a gritty condemnation of the ugly side of political power. Schemes to stay in power no matter the cost. Okay, that's one show. My other and honestly, truly more favorite show is The West Wing. I can watch the, yes, yeah. I can watch The West Wing like on repeat forever and never get tired of it. The West Wing is 100% an idealized version of how government could, could and should be. They humanize their opponents. They generally try to choose this, you know, straight and narrow way. President Josiah Bartlett, portrayed by Martin Sheen, is a good guy. He's just a good guy. He's, he's not perfect. He loses his temper here and there. He, you know, he can be selfish. He can be domineering. But generally, he apologizes. He has integrity. And he is stinking smart. He's so smart and hilarious. Conversations with President Bartlett are spirited and witty and passionate. He's who everyone wishes could actually be president in real life. That's what's going on in our passage today. Two different expressions of leadership. So we're continuing our series through Jesus's last week in the book of Matthew. We're taking this survey today of Jesus's encounter with the religious and political leaders of Israel. Danielle read a short portion of Matthew 21 for us a minute ago, but we are actually going to work our way from there all the way through the end of chapter 22 today. So if you've got your Bibles handy, keep them open because we're going to be going through that whole two chapters. So where we, t- where we picked up in the reading that Danielle did, uh, Matthew 21, 23, Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's teaching in the temple. Mid-sermon, 
the chief priests and elders interrupt him. Can you imagine? It's not someone's like cell phone that they forgot to turn off and it accidentally goes off. And they're like, oh, sorry, sorry. And they put it away. No, no. They intentionally interrupt his teaching with kind of rude and pointed questions. What authority do you have to do these things? Who gave you that authority? Now, by these things, they surely mean his healing that he's been doing, the teaching, the preaching. Oh, and also accepting that title, son of David, the previous day in the temple and as he's coming into the city on a donkey. These guys are concerned about authority. See, the chief priests have authority by birth. They were born into the line of chief priests. The scribes got their authority through rigorous training. The elders just, well, they got their authority by being wealthy. So they want to know what gives Jesus authority. What gives him the authority he is clearly asserting, riding into the city like a king, clearing the temple like a priest, teaching like a teacher of the law. Where does he get this authority? Now, as readers, we know his authority comes from God. In the book of Matthew so far, we've already read that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove at his baptism. Two times in the book of Matthew at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration, we've read that twice now God has spoken from heaven to say, this is my son. So to us, the reader, the source of his identity and his authority is clear. But the leaders of Israel know that Jesus is from a poor rural family. He has no political connections, no wealth to speak of, no training in the law. So what gives him the right to do all these things? But Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, does not answer their question. Instead, he asks them a question. What was up with John the Baptist? Was he baptizing people as an agent of God, or was he just kind of doing his own thing? What do you guys think? Now, the leaders are trapped. They can't say it was just John on his own as a human because they know the people think that John was a prophet. But they certainly can't say John was acting on heavenly authority because John also declared that Jesus was the Messiah. So to accept that what John did, he did as God's agent on God's behalf, is to accept John's testimony about Jesus. So they just cop out and go, hmm, I don't know. And Jesus says, okay, well, that's my answer to your question too. I'm not going to answer your question either. And then the rest of chapters 21 and 22 contain three parables, three questions from the leaders, and finally one question from Jesus. Three parables, three questions, and one more question. In the three parables and the questions, we see two different kinds of leaders. The three parables that Jesus is going to tell are meant as an indictment on the poor leadership of those in charge of Israel. And the questions, the back and forth, they're meant to show us the superiority of Jesus' leadership, his authority, his wisdom. And this entire encounter is meant to show Matthew's audience that Jesus is a better, wiser, more moral king than anyone else could ever be. The comparison of the failures of Israel's leaders with Jesus' wisdom is meant as a stark contrast that proves Jesus' authority and legitimacy as king. 
So the three parables. Jesus tells three parables right in a row. The parable of two sons, the parable of the tenants, and the parable of the wedding banquet. Three parables. All three parables basically have the same message. Whoever submits to God's authority is God's person. And whoever doesn't is not. It doesn't matter if someone is born a priest or a farmer, a Jew or a Gentile, rich or poor. If you do what God says, you are part of God's kingdom. If you don't do what God says, you're not. It's simple. The parable of the two sons tells the story of a father who asked his sons to go out and work. The first one says, nah, but then changes his mind and goes and does it. The second son says, yeah, yeah, I'll go do that, and then doesn't. We all have kids like this, right? Like each of our, like one of our kids always says, no, but eventually gives in. The other one's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that, and never does. This is kids. But Jesus says that this is a picture of the religious leaders and the people that they would call sinners. So the religious leaders say they're going to do what God wants. But Jesus says they're not actually doing what God wants. They've said they would, but they're not. And, and so since they're not doing what God says, they're actually not living as part of God's kingdom. On the other hand, there's people like prostitutes and tax collectors who initially chose life in a way that doesn't honor God's reign, but now they want in. They're submitting to God's rule. Tax collectors, like Matthew, our author, are leaving their old ways of life and running hard after God's kingdom. That's the first parable. The second parable is the parable of the tenants. These tenants have been engaged to work the ground on behalf of a landowner, and they get to keep some of the crops for themselves. But they're supposed to give the landowner a portion of their crops each year as payment, and they stopped doing this. Not only that, but they kill everyone who the landowner sends to try and collect the crops that they owe him, including the landowner's son. So Jesus asks the Pharisees, the leaders, what do you think is going to happen when the landowner shows up? And the leaders respond in 2141, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus says that this parable means that these leaders position their power, their responsibilities as the leaders of God's people are going to be taken from them and given to people who will actually bear fruit for God's kingdom. This is a second very strong condemnation of Israel's leaders. Now, after this second parable, the text tells us that the leaders knew Jesus was talking about them and they wanted to arrest him. Again, they're afraid of the crowd because the crowd also thinks Jesus is a prophet. So they already want to arrest him, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He has more to say about the poor quality of their leadership of God's people. So he tells a third story, the story of a wedding banquet. Now, a banquet like this was a big deal. If you were invited, you went. It was a show of respect to the one throwing the banquet, especially if, as here, it was thrown by the king. An invitation to that banquet would have been coveted. You wouldn't miss it for the world. You might skip, like, your own daughter's wedding for this invitation to the king's son's wedding. Because to not show up is to dishonor the king and say that you don't care about what's going on with the king. 
But in this parable, everyone the king invites begs off. They come up with lame excuses. Some of them even murder the messengers who show up with the invitations. Now, I know some of you are introverts, but like you don't murder people just for bringing you an invitation, right? Like, who would do this? This is outrageous. Who would act like this? Jesus says, the religious leaders. That's who. Jesus is saying that just like in the days of old, in the days of the prophets, these leaders have misused their position of trust. They were appointed to guide God's people, mediate God's presence for the people, bring life and healing and the light of God to the community. But instead, they do the unthinkable. They reject God's invitation to be a part of something beautiful. And they persecute and kill anyone who comes to call them out for it. But, Jesus says, God won't be stopped from his mission to restore humanity by these crooked leaders. He will invite everyone in to his kingdom. Without the need for these crooked leaders as the intermediary, he will invite in the outcasts, the strangers, the foreigners, and he will give direct access to his kingdom to them to let them choose for themselves if they will participate in God's kingdom without these bad leaders getting in the way. So Jesus tells these three parables as a strong indictment, a strong condemnation of Israel's leaders. Because of their poor stewardship, Israel was not prepared for their Messiah. Because these leaders are more concerned with holding on to their power than with with ushering in the reign of God, they will kill the Son of God. So in the tradition of the prophets, Jesus calls out Israel's shepherds for their failures. That's what's happening in those three parables. It's like scandal. Jesus is calling out how ugly their leadership has been. Understandably, they're pretty upset now. They're angry. They want to get rid of Jesus, but they cannot just arrest him for no reason. Rome would not let them. Also, the people would be pretty upset with them. And so the leaders know that to get rid of Jesus, they need a legitimate reason. They need to get him to say something that will help discredit him with the people and a legitimate reason that they could arrest him. So in Matthew 22, that's what's going on here. There's three questions from various parts of Israel's leadership. These questions are a cross-examination. They're an attempt to get Jesus to say something that will condemn him. But in these verses, we're going to see the wisdom of Jesus on display. So the first question in verses 15 through 17 comes from, honestly, an unlikely alliance. The Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus together with this question. Who are these people? Okay, so the Pharisees were religious leaders. They prided themselves on piety, on following God's law to the letter. The Herodians, on the other hand, were aligned with Herod and Rome. They enjoyed the wealth of Rome, the spoils of Rome. And so you can see that Pharisees and Herodians probably did not spend a lot of time together. But they both saw Jesus as a threat. So they got together to figure out a good way to get Jesus to say something that would get him in trouble. Their first question in Matthew twenty-two seventeen is whether or not as good Jews, they should pay the imperial tax to Caesar. This was honestly a great question. 
It's a minefield, you guys. See, the coins that are required to pay the tax were Roman coins. They're coins that had the image of the emperor on them. And every good Jew knew that the commandments expressly forbade the use of images. And so even being forced to use a coin with the image of the emperor was distasteful to the Jewish people. So whatever answer Jesus gave, if he said yes, or if he said no, he would be in trouble with someone. If Jesus said, yes, pay your taxes, the Jewish people who hated Rome's oppression would feel like Jesus was siding with Rome. If he said, no, don't pay your taxes, well, that could be easily seen as a sign of rebellion against Rome. And the Herodians could easily charge him as a revolutionary and have him executed right there. Instead, Jesus finds the third way. He asks for a coin. He notes that it's Caesar's image on the coin and says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He's found a way to answer this question that is neither violent revolt or complicit submission to the oppression of Rome. Give Caesar back this symbol of the oppression of our people. Give it back to him. But give God what only belongs to God. Your heart, your worship, your devotion. And the text says that the Pharisees and the Herodians were amazed. So they left. Then in verses 22 to 33, we read another group came and tries to trick Jesus into saying something that would get him in trouble. The Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees were a sect of Judaism that was made up of wealthy people who didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. So they believed when life was over, that was it. There was no life after death. They saw that the Pharisees had not been able to trap Jesus, so maybe they thought they would do a better job. And so they come at Jesus with a question of theology about marriage and resurrection, which they don't believe in. <laughs> so in that day, if a man was married and he died without having any kids, his wife would marry his brother. And the first child they had together would be considered the dead son's or the dead brother's child. It was a way of honoring the dead brother and carrying on his name. So the Sadducees come with this sort of ridiculous, never going to happen, what if question. What if this woman marries a man and then he dies with no children, but then she marries his brother, but he dies with no children and she works her way through all seven brothers. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be, Jesus? This is like, it feels like an intentionally ridiculous question. Like, could God make something so heavy he can't move it? Like intentionally circular, intentionally impossible to actually answer. And Jesus just refuses to play their game. He tells them, listen, the answer to that question is irrelevant in God's kingdom. It's irrelevant. Who's married to who is not going to be an issue in the resurrection. Everyone's going to be like angels. We're going to be worshiping around God's throne. We're going to be in awe of the beauty and the majesty of the creator. The bigger problem, Jesus says, is that you don't believe in God's power to raise the dead. Death doesn't change anything for God. Nothing. The bigger problem for you is that, you know, rather than whose wife is this woman going to be, your bigger problem is you don't believe in how powerful God is. Ooh, the crowds were really impressed this time. It's how I feel watching the West Wing when Martin Sheen delivers that zinger. Oh, it's so good. This is how the crowds felt watching Jesus. Whew. 
So then this section closes with one more attempt at catching Jesus saying something wrong in verses 34 to 40. It's a weak attempt. It's kind of a last-ditch effort by the Pharisees. Well, what's the greatest commandment? Maybe if they can get Jesus to say that one commandment is more important than another, maybe they can find some like technical heresy count to like come against him with. But Jesus quotes scripture. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes two very well-known passages from Exodus and Leviticus. Scripture passages that were taught to children. Jesus was not the first to sum up the law and prophets like this. This wasn't a hard question. This was just desperation. And while the Pharisees are silent again, Jesus says, okay, can I ask you a question now? What's up with the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David. Everybody knows that. The Messiah will be a descendant of King David. Jesus says, okay, but how come in the Psalms, when David seems to be speaking of the Messiah, he calls him Lord? So the Messiah can't just be a descendant of King David. He has to be greater than David, right? And they don't answer again. They can't. And here's why. Jesus is forcing them to consider the question they asked him all the way at the beginning of our passage today. Where is your authority from? Jesus has accepted the title Son of David when he rode into the city on the donkey and the crowds sang Hosanna to the Son of David. He accepted the title Son of David when the children in the temple were singing it over him. So he is claiming to be the Son of David. And he's also saying that not only is he the promised Messiah, not only the promised son of David, but he is also, as the readers of Matthew know, as Peter declared in Matthew 16, he is also the son of the living God. And verse 46 closes chapter 22 and says, No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus has won this intellectual contest. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Other than that, it's kind of fun to see Jesus wiping the floor with the Pharisees. What does this mean for us? So we've said that Matthew has two main goals in his gospel. Does anyone remember what any of them are? One of the two goals. And remember, what are the two main goals Matthew has? To, To help people believe that Jesus is what? The Messiah, yes, and to help disciples of Jesus know what? How to live as disciples of Jesus, right? So he wants people to know Jesus is the Messiah and how to live as disciples of Jesus. That's his two main points in writing his book. And we can see both of these goals at work in these stories. So Matthew wants his readers to be clear. Jesus is the Messiah. These parables and these questions, all these back and forth conversations They are intended to demonstrate Jesus' superiority over the most powerful people in Israel. To prove that he has more wisdom than the teachers of the law, that he is more pious than the Pharisees, that he is more powerful than Herod. And in demonstrating Jesus' power, Matthew wants to encourage his readers. See, as Jesus does this amazing job answering these questions that are intended to trip him up. This recalls Matthew 10, 19 and 20. 
when Jesus made a promise to his followers. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So Matthew includes these exchanges, not just to show us, yeah, Jesus is God, but also as a real life example of what it looks like to be empowered by the spirit to answer those who come against you as you follow Jesus. That's true for us. The Bible says that we have living in us the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Think about that for a minute. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you, in me, in us. And that same spirit can help us in our time of need. That's true whether it's in a time where we're being opposed because of our faith or any other time we don't know what to do or to say. Maybe when we get a hard question about faith from our kids or when someone we love is going through a really hard time and we don't know what to do. It's true when your coworker makes fun of you for your faith or when your family member disrespects you. Matthew wants us to know that we have access to the very wisdom of Jesus. We have access. Just ask. Ask for help and then listen to what God says. And you have all experienced the ways that God speaks. Sometimes the answer from God might come from a Bible verse that comes to mind or just a quiet thought that enters your head. Maybe it's a word from a friend or a song on the radio. God will speak to you however he can to help you get it. The other thing Matthew wants his readers to be clear on is what makes someone a follower of Jesus. Right, we've said that a follower of Jesus is somebody who is following Jesus, being transformed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. So Matthew includes these parables because he wants his readers to see that just saying with your mouth, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, is not what makes someone a follower of Jesus. What makes someone a follower of Jesus is active participation in building God's kingdom. Jesus challenged the religious leaders through these parables because they said they would do what God wanted, but they didn't do it. They didn't bear fruit for God's kingdom. They ignored God's invitation to participate in his kingdom work. And Matthew wants his readers to see the bad example of the Pharisees and do the opposite. Disciples of Jesus do what God asks of them. Disciples of Jesus don't just stop at a prayer saying they want Jesus in their heart. No, after they pray, they get to work bearing fruit making this world look more like God's kingdom. Disciples of Jesus don't ignore God's invitation and calling. No, wherever God leads, they go. When God invites followers of Jesus to take up their spot, their role, their job in the kingdom of God, they're in. Followers of Jesus get to know God's voice through prayer and reading scripture. They listen for God's voice in the silence. And then when they hear God speak, they do what he says. So Matthew's challenge for us is, do our lives demonstrate that we are following Jesus? Do we attend church on Sunday, but then on Monday live as though Jesus has no impact on the rest of our lives? Do the people that we spend time with see the fruit of the Spirit in us? Are we bringing love, joy, peace, 
into every room we enter? Are we learning to hear God's voice by spending time reading his word, by talking to him in prayer? Are we asking him to show us what he wants us to do? Are we leaving space for him to change us and make us look more and more like Jesus? Listen, we're going to have baptisms on Easter. And if you are ready to make this public declaration that you want to follow Jesus, I would love to talk with you and baptize you on Easter. You can find me today after church. You can email me at katie at harborofhope.org. That's my email up there. And as you consider baptism, I want to make sure you're clear on something. Baptism is very much like a wedding. A wedding cannot make two people be faithful to each other. It's just their declaration that they want to be. But every day of a healthy marriage, both partners have to choose to actually be faithful. In the same way, baptism does not make someone a follower of Jesus. It's just a declaration that we want to be. But every day after our baptism, we have to choose to follow Jesus, choose to be faithful, choose to listen to what God is saying to us and do what he says, because that's what followers of Jesus do. We live out God's kingdom however we can in our own little corner of the world. We demonstrate God's love maybe by slipping a note in our child's backpack to encourage them. We might demonstrate God's justice by speaking up for those who've been overlooked. We might demonstrate God's compassion by serving someplace like the Wish Project. But in this season of Lent, this season of considering the state of our hearts, we ask God to show us how we're doing at living as disciples of Jesus. How we're doing at bringing God's love and light and joy into the places we go each day. We confess our shortcomings and we thank him that he is so faithful even when we fail. That his mercies are new every morning and that every day is another chance to say yes to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you, you are wiser than the wisest people in this world. You are more powerful than the most powerful people in this world. You alone are king. You alone are Messiah. You alone. It's you we want to follow. It's you we want to be like. It's you we want to draw on for strength and wisdom and peace. We want you to be the center of our lives, and we want to follow wherever you go. And we confess that we need your help to keep shaping us into people that do that. And so this morning, will you help us to hear your loving voice drawing us deeper into you, inviting us to get to know you better, listening as you suggest some way, maybe a daily Bible reading or daily time of prayer to know you better, listening as you speak to us about how we can demonstrate your kingdom to those around us, and then help us do it this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.